0: Hello everyone and welcome from me, Tim Lever, one of the employment law partners here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Welcome to this, the latest in our new season of Espresso podcasts, looking at topical issues for our clients over a cup of coffee. So sit back, relax and make a hot drink of your choice. Today we're going to be concluding our mini-series on potential key changes in employment rights in the foreseeable future, if there was to be a change of government to the Labour Party at the next election. In our first episode on this topic, we gave an overview of the Labour Green Paper and comments made during the Labour Party conference. In our second episode, we drilled down a bit into what we think Labour will prioritise and looked at some of the detail on potential changes to the rights of individuals. Those episodes are still available to download if you missed them. In this third and concluding part, we're gonna have a bit more of a deep dive into the detail on potential changes with more of a collective focus before then taking a step back to look at some key takeaways for our clients. As before, I'm delighted to have my colleagues, Peter Frost. Hello. And Char McKinley. Hello. Uh, Peter, uh, you're first up today, what have you got for us?
1: Thanks, Tim. Well, I will endeavour not to disappoint. Uh, And for those of you with a predilection for all things New Zealand, uh, there will be further Antipodean adventures in a short while. Well, first let's deal with what is a pretty much nailed on certainty as i mentioned in part one of this mini-series the recent legislation requiring minimum service levels and the 2016 trade union legislation requiring strikes to be endorsed by 40 percent of those entitled to vote will be scrapped labor just simply has to do this to placate the trade unions And from a slightly different angle, those of us who've been struggling uh, to make our way to work this week will have spotted that the rail companies don't actually want to use this new legislation because it's too incendiary. So that's another good reason. The more interesting aspect of this proposal, however, is is how conservative it is. And I say that very much with a small C. My guess is that the unions would have wanted Labour to go much further than this. And yet for all its determination to empower trade unions, The other measures referred to, electronic balloting, simplifying notices of industrial action and so on, they're very much tinkering around the edges. The essential framework of the Thatcher reforms in the 1980s is once again, it appears, going to be left untouched by a Labour government. One area Labour has vowed to strengthen uh, is the ability of trade unions to get a foot in the door of businesses so as to attract new members and obtain more collective bargaining rights than they currently have, particularly in the private sector. And there's a nod here to what President Biden has done uh, in the US. In yet another rebuff to the Blair government, uh, Labour has pledged to simplify the process of union recognition the process by which they gain collective bargaining rights and to establish what it terms a reasonable right of entry to workplaces to meet their members and to recruit new ones. Now, as someone who conducted one of the very first cases under the new statutory recognition scheme introduced by Tony Blair some time ago and who defended a telecoms company in the longest running recognition dispute ever in the UK, I can well see why Labour would want to do this. The relevant provisions, buried away in a fairly old act, are pretty Byzantine in nature and full of pitfalls for the unwary, including many a union official. Now, it's true that union officials generally know these provisions much better than industrial relations or HR professionals who only encounter them rarely. It's also true that the body that makes decisions on contested recognition issues, the unfortunately acronymed CAC, Uh, the Central Arbitration Committee, that's thought generally to favour trade unions in its decisions. But however, despite all this, the legislation hasn't in general produced the proliferation of recognition deals that trade unions would have wanted. Let's not forget, only recently the decision of the CAC against the union seeking recognition in relation to delivery riders, was I say the union lost that, and that decision was upheld at the end of last year by the Supreme Court.
0: But if that's the case, Peter, uh, what do you think it is that Labour's got in mind here?
1: Well, that largely remains to be seen, Tim. Uh, it's likely to make it easier for a trade union to get a recognition application off the ground. And I think to dispense with the need for a ballot of the relevant bargaining unit once the union has demonstrated majority membership in that unit. I suspect they will also try to prevent employees doing deals with so-called sweetheart unions with which they either have links or from doing a deal with a separate trade union that it prefers in an attempt to shut out an application by a trade union it thinks it can't do business with. I certainly use that latter tactic to great effect myself. How much difference this will all make? I have my doubts. In practice, unions have found it difficult to organise at workplaces and this isn't going to be any easier given the continued transience of workforces and, of course, the growth of remote working, which will make it even harder. But there's no doubt that for employers where there is sizable union membership, but who really don't want to have to deal with a trade union, these changes will present challenges and it may be necessary for them to consider what contingency planning can be done to minimise this risk.
0: Uh, Thank you very much, Peter. Sean, just bringing you in now, uh, what are we seeing in terms of the amendments to the ability of employers to... Well, what we just define as fire and rehire. Uh, is it just as certain that we're going to see developments in that area?
2: Yes, and no at the same time. And what we've seen is that one of Labour's favourite sound bites is fire and rehire, or banning fire and rehire, I should say. And indi- indeed, the Green Paper says that Labour will outlaw it. But interestingly, even the current government, stung by the public reaction to the apparently ruthless sacking of hundreds of staff at p were sufficiently concerned at the use of what's called Baron Brehar to ask ACAS to look at it and make recommendations And ACAS did indeed look at it and they made perfectly sensible points that while the tactic can be abused, in many cases, it is the only course left for employers who've been unable to negotiate changes to terms which they say they just cannot afford. So despite the headline, there is a real question as to whether Labour really intends to ban, fire and rehire. Is it really the case that it wants to force employers to simply sack employees and not offer them re-employment, even when it plainly has jobs they could do, albeit on different terms? If you look carefully at the Green Paper, it says, the comprehensive proposals to strengthen collective and individual rights outlined in this Green Paper go part of the way to doing this, to, to banning fire and rehire. It then says the information and consultation procedures, including unions and other worker representatives, must be improved and unfair dismissal legislation must be adapted to prevent workers from being dismissed for failing to agree a new contract and that notice and ballot requirements on trade union activity don't inhibit them from taking defensive action to protect terms and conditions of employment where an employer is seeking to fire and rehire.
0: So, I mean, what that sounds like it's saying is that employers will in fact, they'll be able to use this as a technique. It's just that it's gonna be somewhat harder for them to do. And I mean, it sounds certainly like it will be more expensive. Uh, Just how hard it's gonna be and how expensive we'll need to wait and see in the light of any more detailed legislative proposals, I guess. Uh, Thanks for that, Sean, Uh, very interesting. Peter, um, are those the most significant proposals we anticipate the Labour will be making? Uh, Not really, no.
1: The uh, piece de resistance, I think that's how I would describe it, uh, is the proposal to ramp up the use of collective bargaining to establish minimum terms and conditions of employment, which would be binding on employers and workers alike in a relevant sector. This is pretty radical and pretty retro stuff. Labour's thinking behind this is that they see widespread job insecurity, inequality, discrimination and low pay in the UK, and that the most effective way to tackle these issues is by collective bargaining, which is said to drive up pay and living standards while reducing inequality, thus allowing workers to share in economic growth. Now, the Green Paper points out that collective bargaining is the defining feature of industrial relations in some of the most successful countries in Europe, without actually naming them. And again, calls out New Zealand as the lodestar, which it says has recently introduced similar legislation. How does it work? Well, the objective is for workers to act collectively to negotiate fair pay agreements through sectoral collective bargaining, which will establish minimum terms and conditions which would be binding on all employers and workers in that particular sector. As a minimum, these agreements would cover pay and pensions, working time and holidays, training, work organization, diversity and inclusion, health and safety, and the deployment of new technologies. This would effectively form a floor across industries to give the workforce a real voice and prevent undercutting by ruthless employers. They would in turn build upon minimum standards and not replace them. In Labour's words, they would ensure that minimum rights do not become the maximum.
0: Mm, I think that's all well and good uh, in theory, but there is of course a risk there that the minimum becomes the norm and uh, with no real incentive to go above and beyond that, which could in fact have the opposite effect to that which is desired. That does sound uh, like the most radical of the proposals in the collective space, albeit it sounds... Uh, quite continental in approach I mean but it is quite considerable uh, it's quite considerable importance to the sorts of things we're thinking about What, what are your immediate reactions to it Peter?
1: Well first a little bit of historical context the UK for years between the time of the Attlee government after World War II and the 1980s had a considerable amount of collective bargaining in both the public and private sectors now this operated in various different ways sometimes at a sectoral level But often at a company or even a plant level. So to introduce sectoral collective bargaining across the piece would represent something of a sea change in what had previously happened. Secondly, the EU countries referred to by the Green Paper are likely to be ones where there has been a long uh, history of collective bargaining. With much greater union density and a much larger number of people covered by collective agreements than is currently the case in the UK and frankly has been the case in the UK for some time. Now, I'm probably one of the relatively few who remembers the chaos of the 1970s and the so-called winter of discontent of 1979 when Britain ground to a halt owing to widespread industrial action by trade unions who use their industrial muscle to great effect. Uh, Since then, aided and abetted by the Thatcher governments of the 1980s, the powers of trade unions have been steadily whittled down and collective bargaining has now largely gone out of fashion in the private sector. I think it represents about 15%, something like that. So to suddenly impose it in this way could cause great disruption. Thirdly, collective bargaining systems generally work best when they respect the traditions and practice of the particular country involved. In the UK, the key trait of collective bargaining has been something called voluntarism, the autonomy given to employers and unions to make agreements incorporated in collective agreements which themselves are non-legally binding and which, in theory, could be ended at will by either party. And this was something the unions were just, if not more, than, keen on than the employers. So the idea that unions could be told what to be not to do by lawyers or the courts was and frankly remains anathema. And so the legally binding aspects of the proposal will certainly challenge this traditional approach. And it begs a very big question we'll look at in a minute, which is what happens if the two bodies seeking to negotiate these agreements can't agree? Who then decides? Uh, Finally, if this proposal does ever see the light of day in anything like this form, it's going to make industrial relations and employment law very complicated and not at all easy to operate. Firstly, you have minimum wage legislation and other legislation like the working time uh, regulations, which establish minimum rights across the board for all employees and workers. That's going to remain in place. Then superimposed on this will be the fair pay agreements, which are apparently going to be foisted on industry by sector and will impose minimum terms of employment, who knows at what level, on all businesses in that sector. And then superimposed on both. Will be contracts of employment agreed between employers and employees and between employers and unions pursuant to existing collective bargaining carried out on a voluntary or sometimes mandatory basis. Now, the potential for widespread and confusion and litigation is obvious. But we're told it's worked well in New Zealand. That's what Labour says. But has it? And here again, we're indebted to our former colleague, Grace Stacey Jacobs, for her insight from Auckland. Uh, Political anoraks like me will be aware that there has been recently a change of government in New Zealand and the previous centre-left administration, once led by the darling of Social Democrats, Jacintha Ardern, has now been replaced by a centre-right administration. But surely if the agreements were working well, why would that matter? Uh, But in fact, they weren't working at all. Uh, This is because the imposition of these agreements in New Zealand caused lots of issues to arise. They included situations where nobody could be identified who was prepared to negotiate these agreements on behalf of the employers, disputes over which employees or businesses were included in which sector, and what happened if, heaven forbid, the two sides seeking to negotiate these terms couldn't agree. It appears that the solution to this was that a government-appointed body would do so. But now, to cap it all, the current New Zealand government is pledged to repeal the legislation. So the odds are that these agreements will never see the light of day, at least in New Zealand. Now, in fairness to Labour, the Green Paper was drawn up back in 2021, well before this change of government. And a variation of this type of agreement does operate in parts of Australia, although again, where there has been a long tradition of employers negotiating with trade unions. Now, there is an implicit recognition by Labour that this proposal is is really radical. It says it's going to consult widely on the design and implementation of these agreements, learning from practices in other countries where they are said to operate successfully. So the cynic in me says that this is all likely to get kicked into the long grass and very unlikely to form part of the employment bill we are promised in the first 100 days of the Labour government.
0: It sounds as though there are probably lessons to be learned more from those countries in which these arrangements have failed to operate successfully, um, things to avoid. I mean, it sounds to me, Peter, that you're, uh, well, let's call it pretty sceptical as to when and indeed whether these arrangements will ever see the light of day, let let alone in the first hundred days.
1: Yes, I think that's fair. Um, Businesses are going to hate this. Uh, and certainly in its first term, I really question whether Labour will want to push through something as radical and anti-business at the very same time as it's asking for millions of pounds from business to help fund its spending plans, in particular around green energy, whether that's 28 billion or another
0: figure. Uh, pretty big numbers. Uh, thanks, Peter. That's very interesting. So having heard that and the detail that we went into in part two, it feels like it's now the right time to step back and see where this leaves us clearly it would be unwise to assume that the contents of the green paper issued more than three years before a general election are a firm guide as to what Labour will actually do when in power however it seems clear to me and i think to all three of us that even if a substantial part of what is in that green paper is enacted in some way shape or form we're going to see some of the most significant changes to employment law and practices that we've seen for quite a while Uh, And even more significant, I think, than the raft of new employment rights that were once upon a time introduced by Tony Blair some 25 years ago. And that therefore calls for at least some form of assessment, I think, of HR risk and contingency planning uh, to future-proof businesses. So so let's break it down into a number of areas. Uh, First, hiring and firing. Uh, In the area of recruitment, many well-run companies will, of course, have sophisticated recruitment processes and indeed uh, a topic close to Sean's heart. Many will use AI, although everyone will need to be alive to the potential issues with that, uh, and in particular the real risk of bias and discrimination, as you'll have seen in the headlines recently. Uh, Most will claim that the instances of major recruiting errors is low. Uh, But we all know they can happen. Uh, People can slip through the net or just not gel with the rest of the team. In addition, uh, I think it's probably fair to say that a significant number of employers may have relatively unsophisticated recruitment procedures, particularly if they are relatively small operations. Uh, And at present, the fallback position is either to rely on a probationary period in an employment contract or simply the well-known fact that employees have to clock up two years of service before they can usually claim for ordinary unfair dismissal protection. And it remains to be seen, of course, whether Labour will make unfair dismissal a day one right, but it's highly likely, I think, that it will drastically reduce the period of service needed to accrue unfair dismissal protection, perhaps even to a few months. So the first takeaway to my mind, is that employers should be considering whether their recruitment processes need further tightening, uh, for example, to ensure that probationary periods aren't allowed simply to slip by and the performance issues are addressed appropriately and in a timely fashion, something that I think we can all say uh, is universally uh, not applied uh, in many of the arrangements that we see. It's also gonna be worth considering uh, if at least some of the future, future hiring uh, is going to be via employment agencies, that may also be another way of managing that risk. And I think sim- similar challenges probably arise when it comes to the firing part. I mean, the current mindset is that an employee will have fairly limited recourse in terms of a straightforward, ordinary, unfair dismissal during the first two years. And the after that, the cap on compensation that currently is in place means that any negotiations Perhaps you might see that where there's a desire not to go to a full process. Um, are pitched around a known and relatively predictable quantity in most cases. That's likely in our view to change. We think Labour will remove the cap on unfair dismissal compensation uh, such that the effect of that, coupled with a reduced period of continuous service required to bring a claim, will make it incumbent on employers to be far more circumspect in how they approach dismissals. Following a correct procedure, as mandated by the law and guidance, is likely to become even more important than it is now. And even where an employer just wants to cut a deal, the employee, if well advised, is likely now to have far more leverage, and so settlements could become more expensive or even out of reach. That's my key takeaway. Sean. Uh, what are your key takeaways for what clients should be doing now regarding single worker status? Well,
2: you and our listeners will have detected a note of caution in previous episodes as to how Labour is intending to introduce this must discussed new single worker status. It's been mentioned so often that I think all three of us are agreed that this is something Labour really wants to do. And so this is a further area of HR risk to be considered. And the key thing here is an issue of categorization of the workforce. So for clients, personally making sure that they understand the various arrangements operating across your business, and many businesses are really good at keeping on top of this, but others, possibly less centralized ones, or those with bases overseas, may have less visibility on the different category of worker that they engage, and they may be exposed in local sites or in offices entering into ad hoc arrangements. So once you know what you currently have, the next step is then to work out where the risk is highest. So where those members of your workforce are at risk of gaining additional rights, and then an assessment of whether or not you're comfortable with that. If you're not comfortable, some thought about what alternative structures may be available to you. And while doing this, organisations should also consider how much use is made of zero hours contracts and what alternative options are if, as expected, these are abolished by labour.
0: Uh, Thanks Sean. So moving now on to Labour's pay equality proposals. Uh, Many of you will now be well used to dealing with gender pay gap reporting. Uh, A smaller proportion will also have reported more voluntarily on race or ethnicity pay gap reporting. Uh, Fewer still will report currently on disability pay. Uh, Now would be a good time to start planning for the introduction of all of those things, if you're a business with at least 250 employees. The key here will be to ensure that your data is as comprehensive and reliable as you can make it. Uh, There are undoubtedly challenges there. Uh, Colleagues can be reluctant to disclose private information unless the leadership of the business has first established a culture of trust, which encourages that disclosure and removes the fear that in some way a disclosure could prejudice the colleague in question. I mean, to take an obvious example from an area I'm very familiar with in my role, On hss disability network a colleague is unlikely to disclose a hidden disability unless they're confident that their employer will offer support rather than fear repercussions once the data is available and that will take time uh, you'll need to conduct some analysis and to see what the initial picture is that emerges in relation to any relevant pay gaps if you don't like what you see that may be a reflection that your data is insufficient, but it may also be a sure sign that you need to confront the issues and take appropriate action to address the issues head on and voluntarily. A separate but often conflated issue, as Sean mentioned in the earlier parts of this mini-series, is equal pay. It isn't clear at the moment just how far Labour is prepared to go in requiring employers to take steps to eradicate the gender pay gap. But as we know from our own practice, both Peter and Sean have been involved in some of the current equal pay proceedings against leading retailers. Uh, this is an area of exceptionally high potential risk for many employers, particularly those with large numbers of female staff performing what might be regarded as roles traditionally performed by women. The EU's forcing the pace here via its pay transparency directive, uh, separate to any proposals from Labour the EU directive could affect lots of UK businesses with European operations and that could well have an effect on those UK operations in and of itself. Again, some initial work in this area to seek to identify the key risks for the business would be sensible. A job evaluation scheme would be the most robust way to proceed but this can be both extremely complex and expensive and can have risks for the business if it reveals a lot of anomalies. The whole area of equal pay is highly technical and full of pitfalls and one where employers would be very sensible to take external advice. So, Peter, turning now to your specialist topic, collective rights. Uh, What do you think clients should be doing in this space right now to prepare for possible changes?
1: Thanks, Tim. Um, In my view, the biggest risk is to businesses which could be targets for union recognition. It's usually those with unaddressed problems with staff who then feel they have no alternative but to join a union for the added security that they think it gives them. The union then uses that membership base as a launchpad to seek collective bargaining rights. It's a well-trodden path there's no magic bullet here at the risk of stating the obvious a business with a proactive employee relations strategy and a credible employee forum or workers council which is seen to be taken seriously by the business and to get some results that is far less likely to be the target for unions than one that neglects these issues or is seen by the workforce to neglect them. So investing in your HR team and ensuring that at least one of them is an employee relations specialist with some knowledge of trade union related matters may well, in my view, prove to be a prudent one right now.
0: Uh, I certainly agree with all of that. And it would probably be somewhat surprising if I uh, didn't. I think a related but wider topic is that of paying conditions uh uh, that businesses offer their workforce and specifically carrying out regular benchmarking exercises to ensure that those terms remain competitive in the market and reflect best practice many businesses will do this as a matter of course uh, as part of ensuring sufficient and efficient recruitment and retention of staff however it could be important to address any areas where the evidence suggests that those terms might fall short and that's for several reasons which together to my mind, demonstrate an unprecedented market expectation on businesses to treat their staff what you might describe as fairly. Firstly, while you would have heard Peter's scepticism about Labour's proposed fair pay agreement revolution, one can't rule out something of this ilk emerging, uh, particularly if Labour are re-elected for a second term. Uh, in that event, businesses would want to ensure that they had nothing to fear from a new sectoral fair pay agreement that could be foisted upon them, as their terms would already be appropriately above that minimum requirement. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, in particular for more global businesses, this could well be a key part of the business demonstrating to its stakeholders that it's a responsible and sustainable business, which would attract and retain both investors and the best people in the market. Many will associate the ESG agenda with climate change and other environmentally focused measures. But as you'll recall, and as Peter mentioned in part one, it's important not to forget that the S, uh, social, in ESG focuses on the need to treat staff and contractors, uh, both those in upstream and downstream businesses, fairly. uh, And to show compliance with internationally recognized human rights, which include fair pay, equal pay, proper complaints policies, ethics policies, and even collective bargaining, where that's what the workforce wants. Indeed, only recently, the EU finalized some very important regulations, the European Sustainability Reporting Standards, or ESRS for short, which will require many businesses with operations in the EU to make comprehensive disclosures in these areas in relation to the whole of their global operations that's a, a huge undertaking uh, and that's something we've already started advising our clients on to make sure that they are ahead of the curve on what is uh, really quite a significant undertaking and finally as i mentioned in part one of this podcast Labour's approach to procurement will be much wider than the value for money approach espoused by the current government here too demonstrable fair treatment of staff will be a key factor in awarding government linked contracts So as we now draw to a close, uh, we hope that this mini-series of podcasts has given you a good overview of some truly seismic changes that are likely to be coming down the line in potentially less than a year now, and some initial practical pointers on how to start planning for them now. It's quite important to focus on that. The planning should start now. We, of course, will be delighted to discuss with you uh, any of these issues. I'm grateful to Peter for some of the historical context he's uniquely been able to bring to these podcasts. So thank you for me. Uh, Look out for some of our other Espresso podcasts that are coming uh, shortly for your next coffee break. Uh, For now, though, uh, it's time to wash up your mug and we look forward to welcoming you back shortly. Uh, So goodbye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.